the beginning, when the highest heavens was not named and the earth beneath was not yet, had, did not yet bear a name, there existed a god and goddess, Aspu and Tiamat, and the chaos of the waters swirled around them. No field was formed, no marsh was yet to be seen, no gods been called into being, and none bore a name, no destinies were yet ordained." Now, if you're familiar with the opening chapters of the Bible, you will realize that that was not it. And fear not, I will not be teaching from this scripture. That was the opening of the Enuma Elish. It was an ancient creation narrative, which was, which was written before Genesis 1. And when I first read that narrative, um, 10 years ago in a theology class, I freaked out because there's so many similar themes and languages. And I panicked, oh my goodness, have the authors of Genesis 1 just ripped off this poem and story and made their own? And in many ways, that is exactly what they did. They deliberately picked up similar, similar language, but they wrote it as a competing narrative. Genesis 1 was not written to argue against science and evolution. It was written to argue against ancient narratives like that one. These creation texts were used as a foundation to ex explain and understand the world around them, who, well, how the world was created and who humanity was in the midst of it. It prov provided a framework for how they were going to order life. And they used it to justify how they would construct their society. And the authors of Genesis 1 wanted to spell out that their revelation of God was fundamentally different to those around them and explained why they lived fundamentally different lives. And when you, when you read the other creation narratives, there are some similar structures and language, but there are some very big differences. In the Enuma Elish, creation was made in the midst of a battle by the gods, and humanity was formed from the carcass of a dead god. And the vocation of humanity was to be the slave of gods. And that played itself out in their society of having a king upon whom he would, um, he would be like the, the god on the earth. And then he would subject his kingdom to his rule and his reign. And they were his subjects. Whereas the Genesis 1 narrative is a framework which was provided for the people of Israel. And it was their story that made them fundamentally different. The way they saw creation was different. And the way they saw their role within it was fundamentally different. This was a creation made with purpose, in peace, with design, and it was made with delight. All of humanity bore the image of God, and their vocation on earth was to serve it, to guard it, to protect it, just as their God would. That's why Israel was never meant to have kings, because all human beings carried the royal identity. It's why the Israelite worship songs in the Psalms are full of thanksgiving of creation as they delighted in all that God had made. They received the, um, as a gift this creation from their creator and they shared his enjoyment of it. To be a gardener, as um, Adam and Eve are described in Genesis 2, is, was a royal ro role. To be a gardener was a royal role. And that royal role was given to all of humanity. And Israel inhabited that story and it shaped the way they live. Now we often say at KXC, the story we live in is the story we live out. And the narrative of Genesis 1 is one of the most fundamental texts that we have as Christians to understand what our vocation is as human beings in this world. But what happens if we flipped that phrase? That the story we live out tells the story we live in. What happens if we pause for a moment and ask ourselves, what story do our lives tell? Because we've got to ask the question, if this is the story we're living out as humans, what exactly is the story we're living in? 
Like the writers of Genesis, we have a competing narrative. But unlike the writers of Genesis, it isn't the Enuma Elish. A few weeks ago, Pete spoke about the shift in thinking over the last, in, over the last few hundred years. And the dominant narrative of our age now is one of autonomy. Auto meaning self, pneumos meaning law, a law unto yourself. And if we could leave the slides up, that'd be great. And it makes sense when we see those pictures that that is the story we're living out because the story we live, out is, um, live in is one where we are the law unto ourselves. That's the narrative that we inhabit, which leads to individualism, consumerism, which at its core is narcissistic. It's all about me. I'm the center of my own world, so I do what I want. I, 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 me, me, me. I want, I deserve, I need. My happiness, my convenience, my desires are primary, which justifies all the patterns of my life and the lifestyle choices I make. These are the waters that we swim in. We've been conditioned, we've been raised in it. And I don't want you to sit there feeling guilty and thinking, oh my goodness, I'm carrying the whole weight of human failure upon my shoulders. It's what we've been brought up in. But I want to invite you into what Paul says in Romans 2. Do not be conformed by the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you're able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. What I want us to do today is I want us to consider, I want us to test and approve what God's pleasing, his perfect and good will is for us in creation I want us to think about what it means to follow Jesus and live well in this world. I want us to speak about our engagement with creation, not as a political issue, but as a discipleship one, because our faith has and always will do speak about our role within creation. It's a discipleship conversation. It would be a discipleship conversation even if there wasn't a climate crisis, because our discipleship isn't about staving off disaster. It's about looking to live healthily in the world. Our role in creation is something that has been discussed throughout history. Francis of Assisi, Assisi Julian of Norwich. But more importantly, if you open the Bible, you cannot, you cannot begin to argue that our role within creation isn't something that's inextricably linked to our story. This is the home that God has placed us in. It's a discipleship issue because it's a justice issue. As we said, the poor has been plunged into deeper poverty. It's a discipleship issue because it's a refugee issue as people's homelands become uninhabitable. It's a discipleship issue because it's a character issue. It calls into question what my, who, how my choices, who my choices are shaping me into. It's a discipleship issue because it's a people issue because it's a question of how well are we loving our neighbor. It's a discipleship issue because the story we live out points to the story that we live in. Thanks, Catherine. <laughs> and when John and I spoke to Pete about having one Sunday focused on this subject, I, th I was kind of expecting Pete to say, let's get in someone from Tear Fund or Arosha, partly because I kind of wanted to outsource it and get the pro in. And part of the reason I wanted to outsource it is because if I look at my story, there are more failures than there are successes. And I know that there's people in this congregation who know and are much further ahead on the journey than I am. But I just want to share a little bit of my story as an equalizer. Now, I grew up in the country. If we could get the slides up, it'd be great. I grew up in the countryside. 
And it kind of started out really well. I was something of a budding eco-warrior, you might say. I, would sp I once spent one summer in this stream because I was concerned about the animals choking on my rubbish. I um, remember spending break times building nests just in case there were some um, damaged birds around. But the eco-warrior grew up into a carnivore. And my family would very happily eat meat every single meal. Being a vegetarian wasn't a swear word in my family. My sister once announced that she was going to be a vegetarian. So my mum immediately got the sausages out. I even took on the mantle when I became a student worker in Exeter. I boasted that I converted all the vegetarians by the medium of bacon. When I... Oh, gosh, I feel the judgment then. <laughs> gosh, however... <laughs> But when I did become a Christian when I was 18, I connected my faith with ethical choices and living and realized that there was a moral dimension to the choices I was making. But about four years in, after being educating myself about how to make good ethical lifestyle choices, I got somewhat overwhelmed by the enormity of it. And no one else I felt was interested in it. So I was going on this journey alone and I totally shut down. I got paralyzed, so I buried my head. And I had a friend who used to talk to me. I put a nagging friend and then I put a line through nagging because she wasn't really nagging. What she was doing was offering me helpful challenge. And I remember her saying to me, Anna, imagine all the toothbrushes that you have in your life. Imagine them all of them piled up. That's going to be your legacy. Because when you leave the earth 800, in 800 years time, everyone's going to have forgotten you, but those toothbrushes will still be there. I was like, right, so she told me to get a bamboo toothbrush. So I bought a bamboo toothbrush. It made my gums bleed, so I gave up. And then people told me about meat-free Mondays. And um, they said, just eating a little bit of meat, Anna, just a little bit less meat will help. But I couldn't do it. Kath will tell you, she lived with me for four years. I am all or nothing. And I couldn't remember. I didn't have the drive to do the recipes. And my love for bacon ruled supreme. And then I thought, I'm going to ad educate myself. So I started doing that. I thought, educate yourself on the food industry, Anna. Let's start there. So naturally, being an all-or-nothing no person, I bypassed meat-free Mondays. I bypassed vegetarianism, and I became a vegan. And I made a big deal about becoming a vegan. For my birthday that year, I got three vegan cookbooks. One of them was called How to Be a Vegan and Keep Your Friends, a very subtle hint from Carrie Ellis. But then I had a very public falling from veganism. Um, I'd say I, I, I kept it up for about four, probably three months, but I decided to keep the title of vegan for much longer while eating eggs and cheese and milk and steak. And this confession came out in a talk one day. Now, I would love to tell you that my discipleship journey has been more like this. It's just been, since that moment, it's been an upward curve. But the reality, it's been more like this. Like anything in our walk with Jesus, we have stumbles, but it's all about our direction of travel. And yes, my aim is to be plastic-free and only eat organically locally sourced food, but I will get there one step at a time. And what it looks like is occasionally looking in my bin at what I'm throwing away and thinking, could I, what could I slowly introduce to my daily routine? Things like reusable cotton pads rather than disposable, refilling, going to a local shop to refill my washing up liquid rather than getting a new bottle each time. It's baby steps. I have a coffee cup. I've been using it for years. It was only last month I decided, you know what? If I'm ever out and I don't have this coffee cup, I'm not going to let myself have a coffee. It, when I break it down to little steps, it's actually been a lot more fun, and I've beat myself up yet less. I have a plan. Each month I take one on one or two things and I just try to find solution. 
For example, I found out someone said to me the other day, um, I said I was using foil, and they're like, oh, my goodness, you use foil. I thought you cared about the climate. And I was like, okay, store that one. That's going to be for another month. Because this month, I'm solving my hair conditioning issue. And it isn't always about spending money. It's about saving money, too. It's simple things like turning off lights when you leave a room, putting on more layers before you put the heating on, only filling up the kettle with the water you need so you don't waste water or electricity. And also, if you reboil a kettle with used water, the tea is going to taste awful, and no one likes bad, good bad tea. And in the Bible, the festival um, to celebrate the reordering of society in the Old Testament, it was called Jubilee. And there's something about actually us taking on this journey in an attitude of jubilee, that this is good news, this is worth celebrating. And honestly, I felt on the last few years of this journey, I've actually felt more joy with each grace-filled decision, and it's felt like a step towards worship. And I prefer the person it's making me into, because when I scratch beneath the surface of all the things that I used to do, and why I didn't do them. A lot of the time under the surface was, I can't be bothered, it's too much effort, I don't want to let go of that, I don't care, whatever. It's too time consuming, it's too much money, but I want, but I need. And that's the dominant narrative of the story we live in coming out. I come first, I'm a law unto myself. And I'm gonna be honest, it's still active in me, but it's not who I want to be. And it isn't the direction of travel I want to go in. So I'm seeking to follow Jesus' example of sacrifice and preferring others, knowing that there will be ups and downs. This is a discipleship issue. The story we live in is the story we live out. And the story we belong to from Genesis to Revelation is a story of salvation that involves creation. For those of you who are new to KXC, this is the framework we use. Pete loves it. Um, and we use it to describe the story that we belong to creation. Now, I'm aware there'd be a lot of differing views in this room about the kind of the theological, the political, the scientific views around climate change. So let's try and find something at the most basic level that can, um, we can, where we can gather consensus. What we can say when we look at our creation narrative is that human beings have a role within it. That we are, um, that humanity is part of the created order. There isn't creation and human beings. We are created beings. We are part of the system that God has set up, which means we are dependent on it and we are sustained by it. And one of the differences between our discipleship now and the, those of the church hundreds of years ago is that no other point in the, in the Western church has, has the Western church been so cut off from the processes where we get our food and our clothes and the things that we purchase. Harvest Festival used to be a moment of genuine thankfulness as the church would come together as a community and, and say thank you for the successful crop that they had been growing. It was a moment to check that everybody in the community had everything that they needed. That praying before mealtimes was a moment to receive the gift of food that they had worked for or their, their neighbours had worked for. A gift that was never guaranteed. Now honestly, I've tried to garden. I've tried rhubarb, I've tried butternut squash, I've tried carrots, potatoes, strawberries, tomatoes, onions, garlic, and beetroot. And that might sound incredibly impressive, but of all of those that have been successful, it's only been carrots, beetroot, and tomatoes that have had any genuine crop success. And even they wouldn't have been able to go into the supermarket. Particularly in a city like London, we are so cut off from the origins of the things that we purchase. They appear on our shelves and at our door, and therefore we actively need to educate ourselves and remind ourselves of where it comes from, that this food, that these things that we have, they're gifts. 
that this world that God has given us, this home is a gift. It was made with intention, it was made with purpose, and it was made with delight. And we get to delight in it, and it is stunning. One of the things that's come out of the last two years is, is watching people enjoy and remember how good creation is. Remember when the roads were empty and we could hear the birds sing. Remember when a trip to the park was a treat and people started growing plants and killing them, I might. <laughs> When people exercised outside rather than in a gym, where we explored the beauty of the British Isles rather than traveling around the world. The world is here for our delight. It's good, it's beautiful, and you see Jesus, he marvels at it. Even in his teaching, it's littered, look at the sparrows, look at the lilies. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The human vocation is to nurture that beauty. In Genesis 1, the word subdue that God gives, commissions us to do is about harnessing the earth for life. Essentially, choose life, protect it from the forces that seek to bring death. And Genesis 1, where he gives us our commission to rule and reign, it is attached to our creation and to our design, that we were made to imitate him. We were made in his image, that our rule is intimately connected with that. We are to rule and reign as he would. To serve, delight, and nurture is part of our role of human beings. It's part of the way that we image God. And it's an alarming shortcut to abdicate that role. And there's nothing, well, there's little, in Christian and Jewish reading which give us any reason to ignore that vocation. But our story also explains the chaos that we see around us because the forces of sin and death have entered our story. They are part of our reality and they are at work in our human condition. And one of the reasons the church can't abdicate her voice in the current conversation is because we have, we have a story which points to the source of the issue. The problem isn't just out there, it is in here. A life turned in on itself. Our relationship with God, with each other, and with creation has been damaged. And part of the sin of the curse of sin and death is a difficult relationship with creation, a separation and a toil. And one of the reasons our engagement with creation is a discipleship issue is because it's a people issue. There are people who are unseen suffering because of our consumer choices, because the, carrying the weight of our demand. But we just exist in, a, um, in systems which blinker us from the impact. We get bargain fruit and veg covered in plastic, clothes so cheap that they're treated as if they're disposable items. But the price is paid by someone, it's just not paid by us. Even our waste is shipped off our island and dumped on someone else's doorstep. And we would never do that to our next door neighbor, so why would we do it to our global neighbor? It's a discipleship issue because it's a worship issue. Because Proverbs 14 says, whoever oppresses a poor, the poor insults their maker, but whoever ever is generous honors him. It's a worship issue, it's a discipleship issue. And the system is broken. And the reason is because sin and death have entered this story. But our story is one of hopeful renewal. Revelation 21 is a picture of what is to come. This is our future when heaven is going to come down to earth and, it's, um, and God is going to flush out of the earth sin and death and he's going to come and make all things new. And for those who have been around KXE for any length of time, you would have heard that there are two Greek words for the word new. Neos meaning brand new. Kainos means something being old, being made new. And it's the word kainos that is being used here. 
Behold, God is going to make all things kainos. He's going to bring back the broken bits of creation, including us and including the earth, and he will make all things new. And if you notice, the new creation is a city. We've gone from a garden to a city. The narrative is not anti-cultural, anti-progress, but the heavenly urban city in Revelation is described as being in harmony with creation. If you go up to the chapter after this, Revelation 2, it says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God of the Lamb down the middle of the great city, great, great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. God's plan for salvation involves the earth and everything in it, and we are the everything in it. This is our future, and it is our joy, it is our honor to enact that future now, to foster that kind of world now. We are kingdom people with our eyes fixed on that future, saying we want to bring that future into reality now. We want to continue Jesus' ministry of pushing back the darkness and ushering in the kingdom of heaven to bring into the center those who have been pushed to the margins, who are bearing the weight of our consumerism, to challenge the systems of power, to create and foster beautiful spaces, to not be the people who throw our hands up in the air and say, oh, there's nothing we can do, but say, actually, another way is possible. When we have to give account to ourselves, to Jesus, I don't think, oh, you were coming back to fix everything, so I thought, you know, what's the point? I don't think that's going to cut it. Or everyone else was doing it, so I didn't think I could make much difference. I want to stand before him. I want to look him in the eye and say, with the life you gave me, I played my part. This is a discipleship issue. Because our stories tell, a, our lives tell a story. And what story are our lives pointing to? And why, why talk about it now? Well, part of the reason we're doing this is because it's kind of a bit overdue. But also, um, I mean, I did, definitely, for one, didn't feel ready to speak about it. But it's always, always been a, a, an issue, a discipleship issue. But climate change used to be something that we spoke of as a future reality, as a future threat. But it is very much with us now, and it is affecting everybody. That first picture on the top left-hand corner is someone called Abisa. She's the same age as me. She's a mother. She lives in northwest Ethiopia. And in her um, community, well, in where she lived, it used to rain um, every four to five months. But in the last five years, they've been hit by acute, the acute impact of climate change. When Tear Fund spoke to her, um, they said that she had, at the time, that they hadn't experienced rain in over a year, meaning their five-minute walk to the river became a 10-hour daily trip. Nine of her 10 cows had been killed by the drought, and it was pushing this determined and persistent businesswoman and mother to question whether her home was habitable. The little girl is called Ella. She used to live in East London, and in 2013, when she was only nine years old, she died, and the inquest found that air pollution had, was a significant contributor to her death. The two photos on the right, one is of Australia, the 2019 fires, and the other is the flood um, in Europe this summer. We are going to see more and more stories like this in the coming years, and how we respond to them is a discipleship issue. 
In September, the results of a global study conducted by Bath University found that of the 10,000 young people across the globe that they interviewed, 83% said people had failed, the previous generations had failed to care for the planet. 75% they were frightened for the future, and 56% believed humanity is doomed. I don't want it to be said of the church that we were those who failed to care. And we will have no right to speak of hope to those who are struggling with anxiety if we don't have a hope-filled story to tell them. And we tell that story with our lives. And this is one of the areas where the church actually in culture has an invitation in. I was at a lecture by Rowan Williams a couple of years ago and he said he sat in meetings where the UN were asking the church to engage. They were actually saying, we need you to engage. And why? It's because a third of the world's population, just under a third of the world's population are Christians. That's a huge sleeping giant ready to wake up. And if the church woke up, we could see real change. So what next? Well, the first thing, um, if this is just like brand new for you or um, you just you feel in that state of like paralysis that I felt, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to enjoy. Things started to change in my story when I actually recaptured my love and wonder of creation again. When I walked along the north coast of Cornwall with my mum for a few days, um, I don't know why that bit got me emotional. <laughs> it was one of the turning points of me realizing actually the wonder of creation and how much I loved it. And at a similar time, um, Kath's, my garden got out of control and it required some taming. So um, more out of a necessity, I decided that um, than something I would actually enjoy. I thought, gosh, I should probably do something about that. Um, and I realized that as I got into the garden, I loved it, I enjoyed it, I'm terrible at it, but I really did enjoy it. So if you feel paralysis, can I encourage you to just get out and enjoy creation? Go for a slow walk in one of our London parks. The autumn, I mean, I just love autumn. The colors are the best. Why don't you go out in sunset or like, if you're early riser, sunrise, and the lovely like pink and gold colors, slow down your walking pace, notice things, observe things, cycle, run, swim, garden, take photos, do whatever you do, get out and just enjoy it. Because it will be the thing that A, helps you connect with God as creator. It'll be a thing that reminds you, connects us again with our role as human beings, our vocation as human beings to nurture and delight in the life and beauty of creation. But also because just love it. It's just good, isn't it? We don't want um, our lives just to be about damage limitation. Actually, we want it to be about enjoyment and good and fostering life and beauty. So first of all, get out and just enjoy creation. Secondly, use your voice. Um, now, on this one, there's a few different things. I'm going to say that of, the, of all of them, I find prayer the hardest, to be honest. Um, I find praying about climate change, climate change one of the hardest things to pray about because I find as soon as I'm asking God to come and bring some restoration, I realize that actually he gave me the mandate to look after it in the first place. So I'm asking him to do something I should have been doing. And then I kind of end up in a bit of a spiral. So, but um, maybe that means that the first step is actually just us repenting. The first step is a moment of repentance. 
Use your voice by writing to your MP. Proverbs 31 says, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. We do need structural change. Yes, we're going to make individual change, but we need structural change. And in November, um, COP26, the UN Climate Change Convention is happening in Glasgow from the 1st to the 12th of November. And it's a great time to encourage our politicians to be ambitious. So why don't you write an email to your MP right now, right or today, this week, and say, I want you to be ambitious. Tier Fund have loads of templates for which you can do that. And also on the 6th of November, um, we're going to be joining Tier Fund on a march in, in London. It's going to be a legal gathering working with the police, and it's a way of us using our voices. So enjoy, use your voice, use your life. Maybe one of the things um, is you want to look at, like, what is your impact on creation? Again, you can just have a look at one of those kind of climate calculators as a way of just kind of taking stock of, like, what is my impact? Think about your daily routine. I do it room by room. And I was talking to Libby Forrest the other day, who's um, a civil servant, and she said one of the best ways of using your voice is considering your purchasing and consumer choices, because the government do track our buying trends to see whether there's any political will around these decisions. So just think about that. Travel. Um, how, now we can travel abroad again. Consider maybe changing your travel habits, perhaps finding alternative ways of getting somewhere or reducing the number of flights or maybe offsetting your carbon footprint. If you have a car, choosing to drive short distances. Clothes, researching who, where and how your clothes are made. A massive shout out to um, Elsa Horn, who is one of our, um, our family members and she's, starting a, she's launching a slow fashion clothes company, which is really exciting. Energy, how can we reduce it um, and have we gone green yet? Reducing waste, looking at what you're throwing away in your rubbish bin. How can you limit food waste? It always amazes, amazes me in London, the number of people who live in kind of like shared houses, but they cook and eat by themselves and therefore waste money and food. Anyway, um, there's also there's a thousand books and blogs that you can find on this subject, but my, my recommendations would be anything from Ruth Valerio. She's just fantastic. We also have two pattern podcasts as well. If you're interested, she did two of those for us. Consider who to do this with, um, because we can't do this journey on our own. Friends, family, who you want to kind of encourage on this journey as well, um, it's always much better to do it together. For those who have, have kids, the chances are your kids will be further on and care more about this than you do. So why don't you let them lead the family in this area? Um, work, if you have a job, you might want to start having a conversation with your boss or your work colleagues about this. Rather than presenting to your boss all the things they need to change, why don't you do like an inventory of things that could be done, maybe gathering a group of people and come up with um, a plan of action of how you're going to make some changes. Um, I also think, in terms of like the work one, this is an issue that requires the entrepreneurial spirit. And Nick Johnson, who oversees our ventures, which is our kind of community of entrepreneurs, he often says to us that the entrepreneurial spirit responds to seeing a problem or a need and then finds a solution to fill the gap. And I would say, if you're an entrepreneur, this is an absolute playground for you. And get in touch with Nick Johnson. But three dates for your diary as in terms of like what next, where can we go from here? The first one is um, on the 1st of November, we're going to have a seek first to focus on this. Maybe I'll get better at praying around this by then. Um, and John and I will be hosting that. On the 3rd of November, we're going to have an event, a sort of like what's next, what do we do as a community next? John and I aren't quite sure what that event will be. We're kind of thinking about how this goes down and the feedback we get from this. 
about how we're going to shape that evening. And then on the 6th of November, we'll be joining, as I said, Tear Fund on the march. And um, however, John, Ham John Carter will be watching Hamilton as a matinee performance, so he won't be there. Um, it'd be great to see... Um, <laughs> It'd be great to see families joining too as well. Again, the voices of children have moved this conversation on much faster than adults have. Now, I know there's going to be a lot of people who sat there thinking, yes, yes, I'm already doing this. Um, but I just want us to invite all of us to enjoy creation, to use our voices, to use our lives, because our lives tell a story. Our lives tell something of the story that we believe in, and we have a hopeful story to tell, and it is absolutely needed on this issue. I am done. <laughs> right, should we, um, should we pray? Why don't